This bonus series was launched in cooperation with SIX, the Swiss Stock Exchange. It focuses on the companies that completed the first Sparks IPO Academy course, a six-month fast-track IPO training program designed for high-potential scale-ups. And now, on with the show. To date, and I mentioned the volume that we've done already, we've had zero losses globally. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So, yeah, I mean... That's, that's really crazy, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not suggesting we never will. I mean, lending is lending, but... It, it shows that the, the product can work. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Ben, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. It's been a long time coming, as you know, so it's great great to finally actually uh, get here and, uh, and have a chat with you about the, the business. Absolutely. You're the CEO at TP24, a company making business credit easier and also more accessible. Before we talk about your company, I actually want to start with your personal background. You studied architectural engineering in university, but then went on to work in finance, banking, insurance, etc., did you actually have a change of heart after university? Um, no, I didn't. I, um, I guess I was, I'm an engineer at heart always. I think I love the mathematics of, of what we do here as well as in the engineering kind of world. Um, it was something I was always quite good at. And being somebody that was not great at academia, so mm -hmm. I, was ne I never had the best results, whether it was my um, kind of secondary school or college. I think maths was the one thing that I clinged on to and did very well at that kind of dragged me through everything else. Um, but no, I was, um, I think I was one of two people in my entire school to go to university. So I came from a pretty, pretty um, working class town in the northeast of England, where not many people kind of got the opportunity to go to university. And if you did, you had to pay for it. So mm. with, within the first few weeks of being in university, I got a job with GE Capital um basically selling things on the phone financial services mainly insurance um and i worked kind of three nights a week plus then the weekends well wow. so over the years that became longer and longer and i was spending more time in ge than i was at at, at school at university <laughs> um yeah reflective of my results a little bit as well i think um and uh i just became obsessed with it i i, I loved the I love the work. I love the the variety of what we were doing in that in that environment, and um, I excelled at it. So mm -hmm. it got to the stage where I kind of finished my degree, and my boss at the time, I was head of operations. I was twenty two. Um, I had about thirteen hundred FTE under me, which at that age was <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But that was GE. I mean, GE back then was still under the kind of Jack Welsh um, mm -hmm. way of doing things. They pushed you very early, very hard to learn and, and to take on lots of responsibility. And I, I thrived in it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I feel bad saying it now, but my, my decision point was, well, if I'm an engineer in London, structural engineer with 15 years of experience, I can earn X. Mm -hmm. And that X was significantly lower than what I was currently being paid at GE in a job that I actually loved. And I thought, well, do I want to work, work the next 15 years in what I've studied and end up earning less than I am today? And I, 
uh, I suppose a very cash focused 22 year old when I think I'll stick at what I'm doing and that and that's the honest truth of it to be honest um but I, I loved it and, um, and I never looked back and I spent um 16 years with GE and it- wow but I mean of course there was the cash right but at the same time this also sounds like a second school a second education that you went through after university basically I think I only appreciate that in the in the later years so when when you when I started when I was 18 and you don't really know anything better other than you're going on training courses you're learning new things mm-hmm. um I think in my early 20s I was a green belt and then by my mid-20s I got a, a black belt in Six Sigma I'd done several kind of commercial management courses in, in Cronenville the, the university that the GE has in the states um some advanced commercial training and I think I just kind of took it for granted that that's how that's how people worked and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And I think only now, post GE, I realized how invaluable that training was and how it ingrained very much the engineering methodology, actually, and how I approach anything um, in, in my just general working practice, because that's all I've ever known. From, from 18 to being mid-30s, it's, it was GE, GE, GE. Right. So, yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible school. And I think... Um, the only thing I, I kind of disliked a little bit in the end of my career with G was when Jack Welsh kind of era finished mm-hmm. and he was very much like you spend six months in different business units, you get thrown in the deep end, you learn everything and it gives you an immersive kind of, let's say, view of the business and the culture and, and, and you can very much turn your hand to many different things. Um, I guess with Jeff Immel, um, he was very much the opposite. He wanted you to stay in your, in your lane really hone your art and skills of, of being in that role for four, five, six years. Yeah. And that became a bit difficult, I guess, in the end for a lot of people because they were used to that flexibility of, and, and challenge mm-hmm. of, of moving every six to 12 months into something different and, and that dynamicness that you get from that. But, um, but yeah, no, it's a, it was a great school. And I traveled the world with GE, did many cool projects. Uh, brought me to Switzerland, which ultimately is uh, where my family now is and, uh, and, and my happy place. So I can't, I can't complain. What was that change of management style that you referred to before, you know, the ending of the Jack Welch area? Was that then also the reason why you decided to leave the corporate world after 16 years and moved into the startup, the entrepreneurship world? Um, no, it wasn't actually. Um, unfortunately, and I think this was the wrong move on GE's side, and it's too too detailed and long to get into in this conversation. But um, post the financial crisis, GE decided to exit financial services globally. So GE okay. Capital, which was a mixture of commercial and consumer banking, um, was exited at a global scale, which meant that businesses were either sold, split up, broken up, or IPO'd. And I, I was responsible for um, some elements of the commercial bank in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Some elements of the consumer bank, and then I also helped on the insurance side with many of the other smaller businesses like healthcare, aviation, etc. within within Switzerland, um, and um, and part of that kind of process with GE um, for the capital business was IPOing the the Swiss consumer bank, which was the largest bank um, entity in Switzerland, uh, which has now become Chamber or Sembra, as some people say, which is the I believe the largest consumer bank in Switzerland. It's an incredible mm-hmm. business. Um, has great people still today. It's doing incredibly well. Um, I think uh, I couldn't be prouder of, more prouder of that business being and, and being a part of that, uh, even a very small part of it back in back as it became Chamber. But it's it's really flourished 
Um, and it's got a great new leader in place who's, uh, who's, who's XG, went out, went to a different world, learned some new tricks and then came back into that world that he knew very well and has, and has picked up the reins from what I would say was a very difficult leader to, to follow, which was Robert Altmaier, who was an out-and-out GE CEO, 20 years, just absolute executor. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a shame to see that business kind of, let's say, IPO and come out of capital, but it was a very great experience for the team and me personally, uh, being on that deal team. And then the the, the 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 commercial bank, we just basically broke up and sold. So part of it, we just run off. The other part of it, we sold to Arval, which was the leasing business. Um, and yeah, and that kind of created um, a home for me in the consumer bank. Mm-hmm. So I ended up joining Chembra totally. That was my full-time role. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it. It was a great period of ta- time in my life where I got to look after my existing P&Ls, but I also got to spend some time in the open market looking at opportunities for the bank on an M&A basis because the bank sat in a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. Um, I think unknowingly and something that I learned, I guess the hard way, was a new board post an IPO had zero willingness to invest in anything new that wasn't <laughs> mentioned in that offering memorandum just six months or 12 months beforehand. So I was coming up with all these great new ideas and potential acquisition opportunities and just... It was never going to, there was never going to be an output to that anytime soon because the bank really had to find its feet and, and fulfill its promises that it had made within that offering memorandum. So mm-hmm. I guess I got frustrated quite quickly with that. But I guess through that um, process, um, I became a lot more aware of the of the open market, of the problems it was facing. And and that ultimately was what, what led me to, to leave uh, and set up uh, TP24. Amazing. And you did so in 2016. You were three co-founders in total. Where did you actually meet your co-founders, Martijn and Colin? Yeah, so Martijn was um, a friend um, a friend of mine for a couple of years before we started this. It, my, our wives actually worked together. Um, so we were kind of expats without kids at the time. So he was my um, weekend drinking buddy. And uh, yeah, we just were very close friends, but he, he's a, he's a out and out kind of corporate banker understood that kind of corporate banking space had covered everything from smes all the way up to large corporates um across several different big kind of global banks including mm-hmm. ubs was the was the last one that he was at um and he knew he'd bring a great deal of knowledge to the to the business about that side of the of what we were trying to solve um and colin is probably a lifetime veteran in in um in trade insurance and trade finance um, works for Marsh. Has spent is a partner for Marsh for that particular area. Still is today. Um, he doesn't. He didn't ever join the operational business, but brought an extremely large amount of knowledge to how we can do things more effectively versus the last twenty or thirty years of, mm-hmm. of how things have operated. Fantastic. And on your website, you actually mentioned that all too often, I quote here: "Finance products hold great businesses back." So in what exact way does that actually happen? Yeah, I mean it kind of comes down to why do we exist? What are right. we trying to what are we trying to do? And I think if you think about the segment that we operate in and this is really important for our business because we do operate in a bit of a different segment to other fintech lenders. Um if you want to borrow unsecured capital, working capital, um anywhere in the world up to say quarter of a million equivalent USD. Mm-hmm 
then you can pretty much have five offers on the on your desk at the end of the day and cash in the bank the following day in any market in the world. Yeah. Um, that's pretty pretty straightforward capital. As soon as you go above that, there starts to be a need to collateralize. Um, and we kind of operate in the 250,000 to 5 million space. So a typical borrower of ours, whether it's in Australia or here in Switzerland or in the UK or in the Netherlands, would have uh, a typical credit line of about a million USD. Um, so it's, it's, it's a significant uptick of an average lending facility than the standard kind of fintech space. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, you look, when we look at the open market of what was available and what we were trying to kind of fix was historically bank credit lines used to do this very well. Um, but I guess post the financial crisis, tightening of things through Basel three and general kind of focus on cost for banks and the, all the usual story, legacy systems, too many layers and everything else. The, these kind of products became very difficult to manage. And I think the risk weighted assets on a unrated SME is probably the highest in in, in, in Basel three. So it's, it's a very difficult thing for banks that are capital constrained to be able to continue to provide. Mm-hmm. And then when you overlay the fact that a lot of these products became unprofitable because of compliance and additional operational costs and many other reasons, the banks just really started to step away. So if you get banked today with a credit line, well done. <laughs> it's, it's quite an achievement, regardless of what market you're in. Um, and I think it's... Um, and it's great to see if that still happens. And I think my kind of absolute respect to the cantonal banks in, in Switzerland who really still stand there and support the SME business and the SME kind of backbone of, of this market. Um, not always through cycles. You'll start to see them come back a bit now because often mm-hmm. they don't risk price. They just try and put put the put the cash out there to help. But in a in a risks in a in a risky cycle like we're entering now, they they would be a little bit let's say, different with how they would approach that. But not to take anything away, the cantonals do a great job in Switzerland. And I think it's it's unfortunate that many other countries don't have that um, backbone of banking um, mm. support. Um, but basically, if you can't get banked, then you've got really two ways of raising money as a business. Um, real estate, which not many businesses have. Right. And unfortunately, what we've seen in certain markets and very much in Australia where obviously we've had a presence for a while now, is 96% of business lending in Australia is real estate backed, but by the private home. So your family's home okay. is on the is on the risk table for your business. That's an and immense you, pressure. If you imagine the pressure anyway an entrepreneur goes through and a, and a business owner, to have that on top is just, for me, I, I'm, I'm really against this. I have a really medium-term goal in Australia to get our cost of funds to a level where I can compete against this segment. Mm-hmm. and really change the game there and offer an, a direct alternative in the same pricing segment. And we're not far away from that. I think towards the end of next year, we might be able to get there. Um, it's really a scalability thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got real estate. And then I guess the alternative outside of real estate is receivable back lending. And this takes two forms today, um, factoring or invoice discounting. And they're very similar products in different markets, different products lead. Um, so in the UK, it's very much invoice discounting. In Australia, mm-hmm. it's a bit more factoring. But there's a very small nuance in what the, the differences in these products are. Um, but ultimately, it's a product that hasn't been redesigned for, well, ever, I don't think. I think it's pretty much been the the staple offering in, in most markets. And historically, I would say, in most markets, it's been a, a funding of last resort. Mm-hmm. 
but probably over the last five to ten years, it's become a bit more of a staple funding source for many companies that aren't getting banked and don't have real estate. Um, and look, I mean, from a business model perspective, it's not a bad one. Um, the companies that operate it can make money. Um, they can offer a, a longer term facility for these for these these customers that need the cash. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a very customer friendly structure. I mean, we tried to reinvent in two ways. We wanted to reinvent an alternative to, to this receivable base factoring. Um, and we wanted to reinvent it from the customer side and we wanted to reinvent it from the capital market side. Um, and I think as I kind of tell you a little bit about our product, you'll see the differences in, 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 in what we've changed at the front end for the customer. And that was really at the heart of what we did. I think nobody, many companies automated and, and brought in digital systems to help them reduce operational risk and reduce cost. Mm-hmm. But for want of a better way of saying it, nobody cared about the customer experience though. That experience was still the same. This was about their margin. Um, and if we learn anything from businesses around the world that have done well, you need to look after your customer. And if you don't, somebody else will and you'll lose them. <laughs> and that's really yeah. what we're trying to trying to do. Um, but at the same time, I think what was really important for us was to try and find a structure that worked for banks as well. Because when when you get rid of all of the bells and whistles, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get capital to where it's needed in the most efficient way possible with the least add-on possible. So because if we can get these SMEs well capitalized and, and well funded, they can grow and they can then flourish. The, the, the economy will then flourish as well because in every market of the world, it's a known fact that 95% plus of the GDP generated is from SMEs. So, um, and these are often the guys that, that get the, the, the butt end of the stick, let's say, in, in times of, of, of difficult cycles or mm-hmm. when banks need to save money or products need to be cut. It's these guys that get hurt. So we wanted to create a product that was capitally efficient and also operationally efficient, that if the bank wanted to, it could still support that segment versus today where it really struggles to do that. Um, so not just direct into market, but also enabling the banks to, to re-enter that space and, and really deploy their own balance sheet. Um, so yeah, so kind of that, that was the, the goal. <laughs> um, as you said, we launched in, oh, we, 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 we founded in 16. Um, we were lucky enough, and I always say we were lucky enough to kind of find the prettiest girl at the prom very early on who wanted to dance with us. Um, these days, it's debatable how pretty they are, but um, Credit Suisse was uh, very interested in us very early on. And I, I don't want to do Credit Suisse a disservice. I, I do. I do. The guys there are brilliant. They're a fantastic Swiss business. I can't say the same about the, the let's say, their investment bank seems to be a little bit different, but the, the Swiss business is fantastic. They've got incredible knowledge. They've got great teams that do great work on a regular basis and we and we benefit from that as a business and that we were lucky enough that they came in very early before we'd even launched mm-hmm. said look we've heard about the product we'd really love to to get involved in it um and i guess fortunately and unfortunately the i guess the the, the good and the bad of that story was we were the first fintech that ever worked with we were the first fintech they ever were wow. going to distribute with under our brand not theirs it wasn't white labeled um, and therefore we met everybody and his dog in Credit Suisse because everybody wanted to get involved in this due diligence to make sure that it was the right business, it was the right mm-hmm. product and there was no holes. Um, so we spent six months in due diligence in 2017. Um, and at the time we were pre-revenue, there was 
two guys um, in a little box office in, in Talika, um, which is a street, for those who don't know, in, in Zurich, uh, not far from Prada Platz. Um, and, um, and thankfully, because we had some very um, supportive angels, um, they kind of helped us through that stage where we, we were extending out the time before we were going to make revenue mm-hmm. to get this deal over the over the line because we knew if we launched with Credit Suisse as the first market entrance, it would be far better than trying to grow out directly. Definitely. Um, and kind of halfway through that, so six six months into 2017, Credit Suisse decided they also wanted to invest, which was also great news, but it was a different team. Sure. So yeah. we then went through a separate due diligence with uh, with Credit Suisse Entrepreneurial Capital, which then pushed that whole due diligence process for maybe 10 months. Um, we signed it in October 17, and we launched in January 18. Um, I guess the lesson from us was, yes, it was worth it, but my God, it was very close in regards to keeping the business afloat um, while not making revenue. And I guess from Credit Suisse's side, the feedback was, look, guys, whilst we're very, very happy that you came in and, and that you're interested in supporting fintech and, and, and looking at new and better ways of doing things for your customers, um, you can't do 10-month DDs with new businesses. you gotta be, you got to be faster. <laughs> not many businesses will have supportive angels like we had. And Definitely, yeah. They can fold quite quickly if they're not generating revenue. So um, it, it, was a good, it was a good all round, but I think the, we launched in 18 with them and we've been active in the Swiss market with them ever since, so... Amazing. Nope. That's really a strong start, right? With yeah, that big player as a backer and as a user, basically, as well. Yeah, I mean, what, I, what, I can't what, tell you how many times we use that name yeah. um, over the years. Definitely. Can you also talk a bit about your business model, how you actually make money and how the business model behind TP24 works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess um, when we looked at this kind of global receivables space, so factoring and invoice discounting, we saw really one commonality um, across everything, which was um, on the structuring side, it was all done on individual receivables. So they may take 20, 30, 50, 100 receivables from each um, borrower, from each company, Um, but each one was individually kind of looked at, it was individually insured, it was collected, it was individually funded, Mm -hmm. um, which was just the way it was done. And that was whether it was Credit Suisse themselves in their factoring unit before we took over, um, or if it was Bluevine in the US, who's a really big dominant fintech in that space. Um, but I guess what that creates on the customer side is a huge amount of reconciliation because each individual receivable they're issuing to their buyers could have different payment terms, mm-hmm. um, has a different risk quality, has a different insurance cost. So every single week, they're having to reconcile back to their balance sheet the advance payment plus then the residual post fees and everything else. Um, and if you times that by a few hundred on a monthly basis, this becomes an incredible monster that you have to manage. So this was probably the biggest issue that all customers had with this product, um, followed quite swiftly by its price, the fact that they lose um, control of the relationship with their client, mm-hmm. um, which was a big one for me, because I think if they've done the hard work of getting a buyer that likes their product on board, which is, everybody knows i mean getting that client getting that customer is the most expensive point in in anybody's business so when you've got them you want to make sure they're happy and you keep them right if you've then got somebody running after them because they're five days late on their payment who isn't from your business but from a business that doesn't really care they just want to get paid Mm -hmm. um can quite quickly damage that relationship so there was a number of kind of things going on on that side 
um, which we wanted to solve for. And then when we looked at the capital market side, so the, how, how, how are these businesses funded? Um, we felt like there was more efficient ways for us to be able to actually structure the debt um, in order to be able to get lower cost of funds and ultimately a lower cost to the customer. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did is we effectively commoditized a, um, a structure called securitization. So we, we took, instead of individual receivables, a portfolio to the whole ledger. We created over collateralization by removing things from that ledger that we didn't like, didn't fit the model, was into company, we couldn't insure, for example. Um, but one of the things that was really important to us, and, and because we, we didn't want a product that didn't give the same advance as a factoring product, for example, which mm -hmm. would be 90% of an invoice, um, we covered global receivables. So in order to support export and in order to be able to leverage the entire book, we wanted to be able to cover all invoices for a Swiss company or a UK company or wherever the company's based to wherever they're exporting in the world as well. Um, and by being able to simplify that journey for them and, ha and have a one leverage solution for domestic and export um, was a real kind of, I, I guess, win for the client because it meant that a lot of their trade finance business they didn't need to do anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was very clunky, very single invoice focused and very expensive. Um, but also it meant that we could have a slightly lower loan to value, but on a bigger pool and therefore lend the same as the other guys on an aggregate basis. Okay. Um, so that, that was the kind of the first point. And then we built a system that would deploy that. Um, so we wanted to obviously make it automated and, and make it very scalable. And that's still a journey we're on. It's not perfect. We, we are continually investing and, and trying to, to, to automate further within the businesses. Um, but I guess what really came down to it and the crux of it was the insurance. Um, so most SMEs deal with other SMEs. They maybe have two or three big corporate clients, usually one, and then everybody else they deal with is small. Mm -hmm. And in, in order to be able to get this coverage across the entire ledger, we had to be able to get an insurance limit for um, a Chinese buyer who has 500,000 turnover. And one in Argentina with 250,000 turnover. Regular customer, but very small business on the other side. And when you know, if you know anything about trade insurers, they typically um, do open market and balance sheet reviews. So a listed company is very easy for them to look at. A company that's a big corporate or a mid-cap right. is very easy because they have balance sheets readily available, they're audited. So they carry limits on larger clients, but the small SMEs, no chance. They just don't have the data. Yeah. And because they typically do manual reviews for credit limits, they also don't have the ability to, from an operational perspective, to give me tens of thousands of limits on small buyers around the world every every week. Um, so they kind of laughed at me when I asked them about this, <laughs> um, which was a bit soul-destroying at the time because we thought the whole journey was finished. Because if we weren't able to wrap, wrap this structure, then getting cost of funds at a level where we felt was acceptable would be impossible. Um, and our structure has a double A wrap. Um, nice which, yeah, from a risk-weighted assets perspective, is very interesting for the banks. Um, and also, generally, as a security structure, is, is means that we can drive cost of funds in the Swiss market, for example, at under 2%. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, 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 it's incredibly important. Um, and they just couldn't do it. So we kind of re-looked at it and said, well, how do we get past this? So I won't go into the, the delves of the detail because it's a bit of our secret black box, if you like, but we restructured the insurance um, and we, we changed the lot 
um, in how the insurance works. Mm-hmm. Um, where possible, because a lot of it's backed up in global reinsurance agreements where it's very difficult to change. But where we were able to change, we changed and we we effectively removed the insurer slightly from the risk while still covering the risk that we needed ultimately. Um, and in return for doing that, they gave us the ability to write our own limits through a trading history algorithm, as well as several of the parameters and third-party data sources we pull in that allows us to say, Chinese Maya, 250,000 turnover, here's a limit of 30,000. Um, buyer from Brazil, 500,000 turnover, here's a 60,000 limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could do that then at scale. And we've probably done, I don't know, five to six billion in volume since we launched of, wow. of processed kind of receivables. And a very high proportion of those, we've issued the limit ourselves, um, which has allowed us to be able to be very, have a very unique approach to the market, to the product, because nobody else can deliver what we're delivering because they don't, they're not able to get the limits and the insurance for it. So we sit here five years later and nobody's ever copied us. Um, and I think it's because of the complexity of the three verticals that we have. So the system, the, the financial engineering, the insurance engineering, all built to work together is just a very difficult thing to copy um but i guess the 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 output of that which is the most important is we have a double a over collateralized asset for the capital market side which can then be tranched where we can have a senior lender a junior lender and we can put our own skin in the game at the front end of that debt stack um, which obviously stands for a lot usually, but sometimes is required by the law, but is certainly a, a, a better structure than a straightforward line from a, from a credit fund. Um, and then on the customer side, we have, because we're no longer taking individual receivable risk, we have very limited interest in individual receivables and the details on them. We have a structure around monitoring them and making sure they, they, they are what they need to be. Um, but ultimately, we don't ask the customers daily questions on receivables. They don't need insurance anymore. Yeah. There's no reconciliation because we're not lending against receivables. We just take we're just giving them a credit line secured against a mm-hmm. a floating asset that we just keep an eye on. Right. As long as that asset is where it needs to be, the customer can just use it freely like a credit line. You could, like what yeah. you used to get from the bank almost, you know. Right. So it just gives the customer a very and, and it's obviously much cheaper because it's very structured in the back end, mm-hmm. which means we can be incredibly price competitive. Um, so th- all of the problems that the customers told us they had with the kind of incumbent products, we've solved. And every customer that comes on board loves the product. Our challenge is just getting it in front of the customers and getting them then to switch. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, and, it's, and as I say, I think even today, it's still globally unique as a structure for the SME space. Mm-hmm. I think if you go up to the large ticket 500 million, 1 billion kind of structures. That's really where the essence of this product came from. Mm-hmm. But it's very secure. Um, I mean, to date, and I mentioned the volume that we've done already, we've had zero losses globally. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So, yeah. I mean, that's really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not suggesting we never will. I mean, like sure, yeah. anything, but, but. It, it shows that the, the product can work and it can really provide a solid collateral base to sit behind lending and hopefully that gets banks comfortable that they can get back into that space and and really feel comfortable they can do that but also take the risk weighted asset reduction on the fact that it's a double a asset versus an unrated sme 
That's really fascinating, Ben. How do you actually charge? Do you charge only on the company side that actually wants to to get the loan from your side and you charge a higher fee of interest there? Or how do you charge? It's the old, it's it's kind of the old school banking model, right? Yeah. It's you, you you borrow at one rate and lend at a higher one, right? Um, so yeah, we just have a fixed interest rate that we charge the customer on drawn mm-hmm. amounts, um, and then depending on the market, and um, sometimes a facility fee, uh, but that's really dependent on what the market pricing looks like. And I guess it's not something I kind of mentioned earlier, but again, that's a really really kind of valued point for our clients. Mm-hmm. They know what they have to pay. It's very simple and straightforward. If you compare that to factoring pricing, where you've got individual pricing on receivables, you've got, I mean, take a look at a factoring contract, 30 different fees. There's an audit fee in there. There's a late invoice fee. There's insurance fee. There's so many fees that in the end, you don't really know what it costs you. Um, and when you work it out, it's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've not seen a factoring program outside of a bank that's less than double digit. Wow. Um, and that, that's an expensive piece of capital for, for a business. Definitely. Um, so we're very much in the kind of mid to slightly high single digits. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, only are we just getting into double digits in Australia now, but because the BBSW, their base rate is really moving sure. quite fast. Yeah. Of course, you, you have to adapt to the market to a certain degree, yeah. but it's you are like a floating facility, but it does mean that the top end then it becomes a bit pricey. But right, yeah. But in in any market condition, you are still very competitive with your rates, basically. Oh, absolutely. We we yeah. will not lose a deal on price. Exactly. Yeah. Another thing I want to talk about, you know, if we hear about the sums that you are moving there and and how you help SMEs, you know, to to get the credit line. And also, of course, of building your own business, that is a lot of pressure and a lot of topics on your plate. So, of course, also the question comes up, what does that do to you as a founder, you know, having all these stakeholders, all the pressure and basically everybody wanting something from you? What does that do to you on a personal and mental health level? Yeah, I mean, look, I think mental health is a a topic that's very close to my heart. Generally, I think it's, it's, it's something that's not discussed as much as it needs to be. And I think if you look at um, this kind of entrepreneurial space, everybody wants to sit in this chair now where I am and tell you how great their business is, how their new investors should come and look at us and and everything else. And, that, and, and that's great. And they should, they should use this as a forum to do that. But I think for me, I'd love to use this forum to really open debate about mental health, especially in this space, because entrepreneurs, and I mean, I, I'm... I'm I am in awe of people that have made businesses successful. And when I walk down the high street in Zurich now and I look at these companies, you, you never, I never thought of it in this way, but somebody started that many, many mm-hmm. years ago. I went through exactly what we're going through and ultimately created a global business. And I take my hat off to these people. I mean, they've done an exceptional job because it's incredibly hard. Um, I thought after this many years, we would be through a lot of those kind of stress points and, and, um, uh, and we're not. And I think we're still in that kind of roller coaster of the startup world this many years afterwards. Um, and it's, I've suffered with anxiety with this. I think if you ask my wife, she says that I'm a different person to what I was before I started this. Um, and that's, that's tough to hear. Um, and I would say that um, me personally, I think I'm, I, I, I struggle with, with the pressure of it. Um, it's very hard to deal with. Um, I have people close to me in my in, in my um, business that have not dealt with it very well, um, and I think 
that probably goes for a lot of people out there. There's a lot of guys and girls out there that are pushing every day, doing 16 hours a day or more under incredible pressure, especially at the moment in this environment where it's really difficult to to raise equity, to to get people on board with what you're doing because they're internally focused on their own um, projects that they've funded in the past or their own portfolios or they're just mm -hmm. waiting to see what happens. And that builds even further pressure on people. Yeah. And I think um, I would absolutely encourage anybody out there listening to this that is going through that and struggles with it, and I'm one of them, I can tell you, talk about it, reach out, speak yeah. to somebody, even if it's somebody that's not involved in the business. I mean, look, I've got, when I started this, I had a new baby within the first year of, of launching this. I now have three under five um, and a wife that works pretty much full time. And we struggle, we struggle every day to make that work. Um, and it's a constant kind of discussion with ourselves of, is it worth it? Are we, are sure, we putting yeah. the family first? Are we, are we doing the best for our kids while doing this? And, yeah. and I, I guess that's a question everybody needs to answer on their own. But um, one thing that we do as a business, and it's only a small thing, but you can access Calm, which is an app um, mm -hmm. for free. We will cover it. We, we pay for it. Um, or any version of it that you have. And, I, and honestly, for me, this is re this really helps me. I don't struggle with sleeping so much. My wife will tell you I can fall asleep anywhere. Um, <laughs> but I, I have my struggles. I mean, I, I, I certainly struggle with my, with, my, uh, with my weight. I struggle a little bit with anxiety. And having just a couple of minutes out and a day yeah. where they listen to something a bit relaxing, they have a number of different things within these apps that just even the mindfulness stuff really helps. Um, and it just it just brings you back. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I've uh, I've had a couple of chats over the years with with different entrepreneurs that I know well, and especially in, in, in Zurich that don't have anybody to talk to and don't know where to go with it. And are just kind of getting up every day, plowing through it and mm -hmm. just hoping it ends at some point. And I think, as I say, I don't want to kind of go into it too much because it's it, it starts to get a bit depressing i guess but if you are in that space please just talk about it talk to somebody in or outside of the business don't don't sit on it yeah everybody so, has it it's not i know it's stigmatized a little bit but it, it needs not to be yeah um and it's just um it's just the reality of, of building a business absolutely so ben first of all thank you so much for for openly talking about this very very important topic i think that's exactly the first step that is so crucial to bring it out there that people know this is normal. Many other people, many other founders struggle with you know, mental health issues because there is so much pressure in what we are doing, what we're building. We're building companies and we have a lot of pressure, a lot of stuff on our plate. When you think about the pressure, where does that actually come from? Do you think this comes from investors, from the business itself, or is parts of it also a bit self-made where we actually think that we need to do more than we actually need to do and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as founders yeah i guess i guess it's it's different for for different people i guess if i look at our our own business i guess the first point of pressure comes from the fact that we lend money and lending money is already quite a not a scary thing but it's a pressure thing i mean if somebody doesn't pay you back it's, it's not great course, um yeah. so if you're the risk guy or the they're in the risk team in our business then a lot of pressure on you to make sure you do your job well. Yeah. Um, and I guess for me, one of the bigger things was was less about what I brought myself. It was more about the fact that we employ so many people. 
So we're about 60 people globally now, and we're going to probably go again that next year. Um, and that's a lot of families. And rightly or wrongly, you somehow carry that a little bit on your shoulders. The, the, and and that, that creates pressure in itself. I mean, and it's the reality of the world. People work for companies, companies sometimes don't work out and you have to get a new job. But I think as a founder, and especially as a company that's grown quite quickly, where you've not really, where, where that's very in your face, let's say. I think that for me drives a lot. Um, I guess one of the things that we're starting to do a bit better these days and starting to recognize is a lot of our investors set our board and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're there in a fiduciary responsibility for their investment more than anything. And I think sometimes if they don't understand exactly what you do or they don't like what you do or they're not, or they, I don't know, there's just clashes, then that can create, because they're your boss in the end, the board. And that, that can create a lot of downward pressure, certainly on the CEO or the founders. Um, and I think what we've started to do as a business, I'm not suggesting we have a board that does that, by the way, but it's, it's more the fact that I think a lot of startup boards are built up of investors. And I think something that the investors need to recognize a little bit, and some do, but is professionalizing boards sooner rather than later is is a lot more helpful and releases a bit of pressure um, from the from the from the business um, because they get relevant advice from experts in the field who have networks and influences in whatever you're doing um, versus just being there as an investor's kind of watchdog to keep an eye on what you're up to mm-hmm. you have value hard in the in the board and i think that for us is really start we, we started to professionalize our board last year where we took founders off the board to show their, their our willingness to want to do this and put direct experts from the market into into those board seats um and it's 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 um game changing i mean uh, it's like having additional manpower out there and additional founders i mean they're really they're really keen to help they're really not that our old board weren't, but they maybe had 20 investments that they sat on. So it was difficult from a capacity perspective for these guys to do yeah, that. Yeah, right. Where if you've got people that maybe only sit on two or three boards, but are experts in what they do, then the, the value add that they bring and the doors they open, and the, they just make your life a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, the discussions at a board level become a bit more tuned um, to, to the business itself, which then, I don't know, all of that kind of stuff helps a lot, I think. Absolutely. You also mentioned now, of course, the board, you said the Calm app to to meditate, to have this personal break. You also said talking to other people within the company or outside the company uh, can help to really deal with that pressure with the mental health part. What else is a a tactic or strategy that helped you uh, along the way? Yeah, I guess it's something we work on every day. Um, There's no quick fix to this stuff. And I think um, I go through periods myself where I'm just like, like right now, I mean, to give you a flavor of what we're up to right now, we have two new markets this year, which we launched into, so the UK and the Netherlands. They're in their teething kind of phases of where we really need to spend a lot of time supporting them. Um, They need a lot of equity. um, They need a lot of attention. We're doing a 200 million um, pound um, senior capital raise, um, which is in its kind of long term sheet phase. So we've got three or four big global banks putting that money on the table in front of us um, that we need to close out. We're doing a Series B and we're raising 50 in total. 
Um, we've probably got the another half of the half, so probably another 12 to 15 closing. Um, and then we, we look to close out the kind of last 10 to 15 in the next three to four months. Um, so it's, but that's a big raise in a difficult environment next to the big kind of debt capital raise on top of that, mm-hmm. um, plus new markets. And then I guess plus um, generally the stress of what's going on at the moment with the war, um, with inflation, um, potentially going into a down downward cycle of recession across Europe and, and, and other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's not pressure for our business. Our business actually does really well in recession because we're, we're a structured product that's, that's, that's secured. So where everybody else backs away, we don't. We stand and we, we're, we're a sustainable product for our partners. Um, and I think, so for us, this is not the worst place to be, but for our, our family, our, our, our people, sure. this, this, this is getting harder for them. I mean, it's, so all of this kind of stuff brings a ton of pressure this year to us where I think we've really, we've all been under the cosh. I mean, if you ask anybody in our business, especially through the DD we've been going through recently from many different angles, everybody is kind of up to here. Um, and I think Christmas is is something that everybody's looking forward to kind of getting a couple of weeks out, really just switching off, relaxing. Um, and I guess that's it, right? I think I, I'm, I'm learning, I'm not there yet, to try and not look at my phone and not read emails from kind of six to eight in an evening when I've got the kids. Um, and, and then the weekends. And it's, it's super difficult. But you've got to kind of scratch out some existence for yourself outside of work to to try and um i don't know i think fixing yourself is the first thing you should always try and do before you try and do anything else and that for me is health i need to do better at that i need to spend more quality time with my kids um and those are the i guess the other two things that i'm really working on which i think will have an overall impact on on me and my stress levels and my mental health and then ultimately the business itself yeah because i can be more more here, more more present, uh, more focused. Absolutely. Um, I, I have two things to add here, just from my very personal perspective. Um, but one thing that always helped me, I call it like self-care day. So I would just go on a Saturday, just take the whole day to myself and just like go for a massage or hit the gym, <laughs> nice. uh, go and get a new haircut, whatever you know makes me happy, go for a long walk in nature, just really say, this is a day or just a few hours just to myself to really recover and value myself and take good care of myself. And yeah. I think the second thing that that also helped me tremendously, I use a platform called InstaHelp. I'm not affiliated with them in any way, but it's basically online psychologists um, that you can then work with on a regular basis. Yeah. So depending on, on the intensity, I usually do like a check-in once a month, but sometimes there are way more you know, personal topics or business topics that need more attention. So then I do one or two sessions a week. And it's very cost competitive from a Swiss perspective because they are usually sitting in Austria and Germany or somewhere else. And they are really like professional and certified psychologists or even psychotherapists who can really help you with the whole topics that you have that keep you busy, that stress you out. And getting professional help is not something to be ashamed of, but actually like a good coach to help you to perform better and really take good care of yourself. So these are two strategies that worked well for me. It's again, very individual, but just if anybody relates to that, maybe it's worth to, to give it a shot. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Insta help you said. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll check it out. 
Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's good. I'm, I'm often in awe of my wife, who obviously manages me plus the three kids on a <laughs> on a full time job, and she's a career career animal. I would say she's done really well. Um, but she's she's carved that time out for herself where she goes running. Um, nice. And yeah, and she's not run for many years. Obviously, had three children very close together, so always been some form of pregnancy post or during and it's uh, and now she's kind of getting up to the she's done the 5k thing and now she's doing the 10k wow. and wow. i think if, if i look at that example of just as you say taking that little bit of time out for yourself makes a huge difference um it's something that i'm uh, aspiring aspiring to um but yeah no no it's great advice really great advice. I, I really appreciate your, your your openness to to talk about this topic there is one more thing i want to talk about to you before we actually wrap up the episode. And you actually recently participated in the Swiss Stock Exchange training program called the Sparks IPO Academy, which prepares companies for an IPO. So I was just curious, first of all, what actually motivated you to participate in that program? Yes, I mean, it was, first and foremost, it was a fantastic program. Um, I think six are really good at nurturing um, and trying to um, build up kind of the the Swiss financial kind of ecosystem. Um, and I think the Sparks program and the Sparks kind of exchange is a, is a great example of that. Um, whether or not it'll be successful or not is a different matter, and I think I have some views on that. But um, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I've, I've done an IPO in the in Switzerland before, which is quite a rare thing with Chambra. Um, I had my uh, own responsibilities for in that, so underwriting the... Uh, the transaction and, and taking care of all the relevant insurance parts that were that were within that um so i had a good view of that experience mm -hmm. um but it was really great to be um included in that kind of first wave of companies going through it um and it was a real kind of well it was a refresher but it was also i also learned quite a good few things in there as well for a business like ours um, we didn't apply for it. We were selected, which was really nice. Um, cool. We were the only um, financial uh, kind of services company in there. Um, everybody else came from different verticals, let's say, of different, different sectors. Mm -hmm. um, I guess some of the good things we took out of it were we're pretty ready if we want to do it. But I guess because we, we effectively work with a lot of banks and we're a financial institution, we're somewhat regulated by FINMA yeah. um, through the SRO process, a lot of our T's are crossed and a lot of our I's are dotted. So we have processes, process maps, we have tons of documentation, you name it. Where if you're a, I don't know, a company that makes drones, um, maybe that's less of a focus and you have a bit more of a, let's say, a way to go in getting ready for that. Sure. Um, so I felt like our readiness to go into something like that would be quite strong. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the program itself I could highly recommend. I think there were some great partners there that were... Um, so the, the legal partners, the PR partners, the guys that ultimately help you with this process. And, and this process starts 12 months before you even go into it, right? So it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a well-considered thing that you're going you're gonna to enter into. Um, I think where I was less impressed was the banks. So the banks that were pitching in that program um, almost kind of didn't give me the comfort factor that they have the client base to support it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think liquidity in that type of structure in that type of marketplace is crucial yeah. and whether or not Sparks gains the 
the the ability to have that level of liquidity for companies of that size is is the question mark for me. Mm-hmm. And if I base it on the first round with the banks, <laughs> I'm not sure it would. So I think the banks really have to make a big kind of leap forward there with with what kind of segment of their client base they approach with this mm-hmm. versus the standard one. Um, and really bring the masses to this marketplace to support that kind of structure. And I think if they can stand up to that challenge, then I think Sparks would be a great place for us to, to list in the future if that was what we wanted to do. Absolutely. And you've already gone through an IPO. You now have basically the refresher about going IPO in you know today. From your perspective and your experience, what are the biggest pros and the biggest cons of going IPO as a company? Yeah, it's a big question. I think, um, I mean, obviously with an IPO, I mean, you, you're pulling your pants down, right? And showing everybody what you've got. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really that, that brutal. I mean, the, the, the memorandum has everything and anything in it. So you need to be really well prepared. The business needs to be well structured. You need to have everything, um, as I say, kind of T's and T's crossed and I's dotted. It, it really needs to, it, it's, it's a significant amount of work for the entire organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to be ready for that. And I think when you're in a growth phase, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be ready to be able to then deal with an IPO on top of that as a business. It's just like, yeah. I just think it would be too much. Mm-hmm. I think you need to have kind of gone through quite a significant growth phase where you, you are still growing, but maybe a bit more steadily. It's a bit more day-to-day kind of running versus constantly trying to catch up with everything. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a key consideration um, for, for looking at doing that. Um of course, it gives you much simpler and easier access to, to capital, um, which when you look at businesses of uh, in C, Series A, Series B, Series C, even access to capital is incredibly time consuming. My team will tell you that when I'm fundraising, which is most of the time, I'm not present. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the business like I want to be. Um, I thankfully have a great management team that can that can run the business um and can deal with me not being there or not being as present as i like to be um but for a lot of businesses that takes out critical resource for a long period of time so having an easy way to get that done and a faster way of getting that done that's very structured and simple to use is incredibly attractive Mm -hmm. um should the liquidity be there i mean that's right on a normal exchange i think that's that's kind of a bit of a given um so i guess for me those are definitely interesting i think um, from a founder's perspective, if you have preference rates and preference stocks, doing an IPO is definitely more efficient for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things get converted into common stock and uh, preference kind of goes out the window a little bit, typically. Um, so it's a good exit route in that sense, um, depending on how many kind of preference um, type shares you issue. We've been re- reasonably lucky there in, in, in how we've been structured. Um, I guess downsides are it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly time consuming, um, both doing it and then running it and maintaining it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just changes the, the, the way the business needs to operate. Right. Because you, you need a certain level of training within the business to make sure that people are not talking outside of school in regards to future looking statements. Um, you need to have incredibly um, diligent and very structured processes around reporting and auditing and, uh, and all of that comes at a, a sig- not that we don't today, but for a lot of businesses, they don't, a lot of businesses don't necessarily need that if they're not in financial services. So I think that side of it needs to not be underestimated. I guess running a, uh, just the process of being listed 
I guess runs a couple of million a year in additional costs. Well, so yeah. there, need, there needs to be a serious consideration of, of that when you're looking at it. Um, obviously, a trade sale is a bit cleaner. Um, but yeah, I, I guess for me um, right now, if I had to put my finger on it, I would say for us, an IPO is probably more likely than a trade sale. Um, and probably my preferred route. Um, but we'll, we will see. No, no specific plans yet to go no, down that no, path. No, 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 no. Yeah. Still a bit, still a bit too early. I think we've got a couple of years worth of of solid growth ahead of us before we kind of get into being able to be as a business ready to do that. I think. Right. Yeah. So Ben, to wrap up the episode, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Um, I either give you different options to choose from or a simple question, and you have to answer in one sentence. Okay. You ready? Not very good in one sentence, but I'll try. Let's see. Switzerland, England, or Australia? Switzerland. Beer or wine? Oh, I usually start with a beer and then move quickly to wine. <laughs> good one. What would you never borrow from your friends? Their children. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Mm, last night was good. I reckon it was about nine hours, but I had a 90-minute break around 3 a.m. with my daughter who yeah. saw some pirates in her bedroom and didn't want to go out to sleep. Right. <laughs> IPO or trade sale? IPO. What do you wish you had done differently in your career? If anything, um, nothing. I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy with how it is so far. Nice. And the last one: mountains or lakes? I'm a keen fisherman, so I would say lakes. Okay, perfect. Not, not that I've done it for a long time, but I do love fishing. That's fine. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for your time and for the openness. Really appreciated the conversation with you. All the best, lots of success, and very curious to see where you will take TP24. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the uh, the podcast, and uh, hopefully the, the listeners did as well. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to reach out on any of the subjects we've talked about or needs needs an ear, um, you can get in contact through Sylvana, and I'm sure he'll give you my details. Uh, more than happy to, to have a chat with anybody who needs, uh, needs an open ear. Wonderful. Thank you, Ben. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.